This is Kent Clothier. If you are looking to improve your life, improve your business, and just get it all together, you're in the right place. Welcome to the Time Is Now podcast. So guys, I am joined here by the one and only four-time UFC champion, Mr. Frank Shamrock, uh, the one of the best guys I know. We've had the pleasure of meeting a couple of years ago. Uh, it continues to be extremely inspiring. Some, what, what ah, you, there it Jesus Christ, you knew, you knew it was coming. Um, anyway, this is a rare, rare opportunity to get the chance to hear from a guy that obviously is, is not involved in real estate, but he is absolutely has, knows exactly what it takes to fight through obstacles, to, through, to fight for a dream, to become a champion in every sense of that word. Like I said, he and I met a few years ago. He came and spoke at one of our private masterminds. It was a, a, an amazing success. Our, our uh, tribe there got a ton of value out of it. And so I'm really, really excited to have you here, brother, to kind of do the same here. Let's just kind of talk for the next you know, 45 minutes or so and share, share some of your stories, share some of your insights, share some of the trials and tribulations and overcoming you know, what it takes, right? That whole champion mentality. That's really what I want to get out of this for everybody. Yeah, man. Nice to be here. Nice to hang out again. I can tell you what I know about real estate. And that's what my first coach told me. Always take the center of the ring. <laughs> there you go. Then you get to drive the decision. You get to drive the, uh, Always take the center of the ring. Yeah. You get to drive the actions. You can drive the reactions and you get to be first. So always take the center of the ring. I recommend the same for people in real estate. Take the center Amen, of the ring. brother. Hey man, you know what? That's applicable in just about anything you do, right? Get, get where you got to get, get your good footing and make sure that you're in control of the situation instead of always having to react. Right? Yeah. Amen to that. So, dude, uh, Frank, for people that don't, you know, not everybody in here is going to uh, understand or, or know anything about UFC or MMA or any any of your background. Kind of get let everybody know a little bit, you know, a little brief history, and then we'll start doing some deep dives. For sure. Yeah. Well, I was the uh, first ever uh, UFC middleweight champion. So uh, when they um, when they decided to put weight classes in, I was sort of chosen as the um, weight class guy. And then I became the first talent spokesman for the sport of UFC. And so my that job then was to travel around, convince everybody that cage fighting was a good idea for us here in America. And that was the early days, man, before we came more <laughs> mainstream, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I matured that into being a sports broadcaster. And then I uh, started my own fighting league, which would have been Strike Force MMA with my partner, Scott Coker. And we took that all the way to network television um, and in five years uh, grew it into a multi-million dollar company. In fact, we sold it to the UFC after five years for $40 million. And then I uh, made a very nice exit and um, kind of expanded my uh, stay-at-home strategy and spent a lot of time with my family and kind of accomplished all my business dreams in a very... um, very short period of time, about five years from the entrepreneur side, but I was a professional fighter for 16 years and um, widely credited with convincing America that cage fighting uh, is a good idea. So that's my claim. So tell me, let's talk about that because clearly, I mean, when you're in the infancy, you know, a lot of people plug into, uh, well, I'll give you an example. So I just had the the CEO and founder of Hint Water on here this morning and uh, Kara Golden. And so she's, she's, when she started her company was going up against, you know, the main beverage companies like Nestle and Coca-Cola and Pepsi and trying to make a name for herself and go out there and start a water company of all things. Right. But she just happened to be right and happened to keep pushing and happened to have all that mental attitude. Now she's built a hundred million dollar year company out of it. And so 
let's talk about what it looks like in your world when you're out there trying to convince, you know, a world that clearly looks at, is probably looking at that as a very brutal sport, doesn't really understand it, doesn't understand anything like they do today. What were, what was that, what was that like? What were the challenges that you had to overcome there? Major, major challenges, just both socially and then from a, a business standpoint. It was really an unproven television concept. Um, and then ironically, as I entered the sport, we were entering our toughest years where we were being kicked off of cable. You know, we had uh, um, Senator John McCain came out against the sport itself. We were on the cover of New York Times as a human cockfighting. So I, I entered a sport that had actually been, you know, pretty damaged. And from a viewer standpoint, it was still in demand as a, um, you know, viewership product. But from the distribution side, uh, all networks are basically taking hands off uh, because it had gotten sort of a bad rap. So where most people walk into a business because it's successful and because there's huge opportunity, um, I felt that way. But when I entered it, there was actually, you know, many barriers to be moved out of the way. And so I went to work removing barriers. I, you know, like I said, I was the first talent spokesman. And my first job was to go around and convince people and to find out why we'd been kicked off of cable and to find out what the needs were for us to get back on those distribution sources and get back into uh, American homes. We went from 100% of the audience down, and down to about 10% of the audience, maybe 8%. Uh, back in the day. So it was a tremendous uphill battle. But, you know, from my own personal experience, I had, you know, I grew up on the streets, I grew up in institutions. And before I was a professional athlete, I was in prison. So I, you know, fully understood what it took to commit to something. And the, you know, the feedback that I got from this sport personally, was where my passion came from, because it helped focus me and it helped you know, guide me. And I could see at the end of the rainbow that this thing could be and would be, you know, a very popular sport because fighting is very sexy. It's very interesting. It's great storytelling. And so, you know, I was able to, by looking at professional wrestling and by looking at other forms of entertainment, you know, I was able to sort of parallel that and say, wait a minute, you know, if we could get through all of this social angst and issues at the end of this is a very, you know, happy rainbow because, you know, once the social problems go away and the social perception is, is understood better, you know, I thought it would be a hugely viable product. And so I went to work changing the social perception, <laughs> convincing people that, you know, it was, um, you know, a sport first and then a way to express yourself as an art form and then a great way to stay in, in shape and to focus on mind, body and spirit and health and fitness. And I carry really those principles with me through both my entire career, but especially my career as a presenter and as a spokesman. And that, that made all the difference in the world for our brand, for the sport itself. And, um, you know, once, we, once the UFC sold for $4.2 billion, uh, all those naysayers and all those people that were shutting the door in front of me and, uh, you know, escorting me out of the room, you know, they immediately called and were like, wow, you know, you were right. Yeah. Yeah, there's two, there's two, two places I want to go with this. The first is, is um, did you ever envision that it would be as big as it is now? And do you think it can, do you think it's still got all, all kinds of room to go? I 100% envisioned we'd get to here. And that's why I was, you know, literally willing to risk my life because I saw it as, you know, the one and only opportunity that I had to be successful. 
Um, you know, like I said, I grew up on the streets. I mean, my my education came from uh, college in Folsom Prison. So I didn't have a lot of, you know, uh, bullets in the gun. Right. And so once I saw this thing and really I paralleled it to professional wrestling, you could see the growth, you could see the interest and you could see the parallels quite early. Uh, it was about storytelling. It was about athletic performance. It was about taking common social stories and having them sort of work out in the cage. Um, and yeah, and then for me personally, it gave me such, uh, you know, health benefit, both mentally and physically, you know, psychologically and physically. And then socially, it gave me this huge community of people that were interested, who wanted to train, who wanted self-improvement. So it became, you know, the fabric to who I was. And then like, like we started, I took the center of the ring. <laughs> I was like, well, here's what I believe in, right. you know, regardless of whether you guys believe it or not, because here's what it's doing for me. So my personal experience you know, uh, added to the passion of what I was speaking about. And that's what helped sway people. You know, people were like, wait a minute, he's either crazy or there's something there, you know, that's helping both him and other people, you know, sort of bring this message forward. Well, it's, it speaks to the power of when you get extremely convicted about something. And to your point, because it's, it's brought so much value to your own life, you're no longer, I mean, at least in my own experience, you're no longer really, um, selling, if you will, you're just, this is, this is what I believe. This is what I stand for. This is what I stand against. This is ex- what I, this is who I am at every fiber of my body. So this is where, this is that place I'm going to come from. I'm, I'm assuming that's exactly your same experience. Yeah, totally. And there's something very convincing about that because it's, yeah. it's very earnest and very real. And, and, uh, you know, when I speak about it, uh, you know, people ask me, well, draw a parallel. And I'm like, well, how about a preacher? Like he's so in, and that's his belief. That's literally the fabric of his life. Uh, but when you sit down and listen to a really good preacher for five minutes, you're like, wow, that, yeah, I need to go do this, or I should go do this, or this is something I'm passionate about. And, um, you know, that's who I became for the sport. Because I, you know, it literally saved my life. It changed my life. Before that, you know, my life was, was crap. Yeah, let's talk about that. Because, I, and, you know, I got, I got the opportunity, like I said, we met through a mutual friend, and I got the opportunity to spend... Uh, uh, some time, a lot of time with you in Orlando and get to know you a lot. And then I got to hear some of the stuff. I, there was a lot of stuff, quite frankly, I didn't, I had no idea of, of how, you know, you had come up and become, you know, you hear Frank Shamrock and you think of UFC champion, you think of this guy, but the journey there was, is just fascinating and amazing. And I think that there's a lot of parallels, especially as it relates to this right now, right? You got people that are watching this right now that they are, staring in the face some, you know, some uncertain times, some obstacles where they, they don't know how to look around corners. They don't necessarily, they've never been tested like this. They've never been pushed down and knocked down. They, they haven't had any of that. And so I would love for you to talk about kind of your journey and then some of the lessons you learned along the way. For sure. Yeah. Well, it started for me when I was actually 11 years old. Because when I was 11, I, uh, I threw rocks at a train. And unbeknownst to me, that was a felony in the state of California. So it was the very first time I'd left my home. It was the very first time I'd left my sort of very protected uh, world. And when I got to juvenile hall and I was talking to the other kids about, you know, how their life was going and, you know, how things are in their world, I was just very surprised to learn that I was the only guy being locked in a closet. And I was the only guy who was living in the backyard and in the tool shed. And, and I slowly had this realization, you know, at a very, you know, prime time of my life where, you know, the world's opening up there was something really wrong with what was happening in my home. And it just, you know, woke me up. I became woke at that moment <laughs> that, that it wasn't this, you know, um, normal life. 
And so I started searching for answers. And the answers actually came from my uh, counselors in Juvenile Hall because they were very adamant about saying, listen, if you keep doing these type of crimes, they're going to take you from your home. And I took that as a, a, a source of knowledge. You know, I took that as a mentor, like, listen, if you keep doing these crimes. So I started committing crimes knowing it would take me from my home. And within, you know, six months, I was taken from my home. I became a ward of the state of California by the time I was 12 years old. And then I started working my way through the California penal system, through the institutions of, for youth. And that involved, uh, you know, basically starting at the bottom. So I was in foster care, and then I went to group care, and then I went to social care, and then I went to work camps. And I ended up working my way all the way to youth prison because, um, you know, the lesson here is crime is not a good tool for getting out of anything. Right. It's actually the opposite. And that's why, uh, you know, the criminal institutions are in place. Um, but it was through that process that I learned through trial and error what was good for me and what wasn't. And luckily, along the way, uh, at my fourth or fifth uh, home, I ran into a guy named Bob Shamrock. I was in the uh, Shamrock Boys Ranch. And he was the first real father figure who, you know, taught me about being a man and what life was about and really gave me these concrete, very clear lessons um, as a mentor and as a leader. And then he stood by those lessons and then he reinforced them through, you know, positive support and, and or punishment. Right. And uh, even though I messed up and I ended up being taken out of his home and going further along in institutions, he still stayed as a mentor to me and, you know, stood by my side, taught me about physical fitness. He was a bodybuilding fan. Um, you know, he always told me you could do, you know, you could be a professional athlete. You know, you've got gifts in your body. You know, you're real strong of mind. And he would kind of sprinkle these ideas into me. And it wasn't until I was 18 and I went to prison, you know, adult prison, and I woke up and realized that I wasn't getting out. And I had years until I got out, you know, that I realized I had to make a plan and I had to make a commitment to something. And the only thing I knew was building up my body, building up my mind, the stuff that Bob had taught me, and then working on my spirituality. And so I, you know, committed to doing that work for three and a half years until I was released. And just before I got released, you know, Bob sat me down and he said, all right, you've, you've done the work, you're ready, you know, here's your options. You can go be a professional athlete, uh, you can actually go be a stripper, that was option two, you can be a stripper. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and so I, and I always had this childhood dream of being a professional athlete, you know, of having that strength and having that courage, having that voice, uh, having the microphone at the end. Um, so when, you know, when he mentioned that to me, I made the commitment and this is, you know, I was very afraid of fighting, you know, I was very shy of violence, you know, I was in prison and, you know, there you walk a certain walk, you talk a certain way. Um, but at the end of the day, you're always trying to avoid that stuff because it's so dangerous. Right. Um, and you know, my, I felt like my only option was really to, to step into this role of being a professional fighter. And that's what I did. Two days out of prison, I, I showed up at the martial arts school and then I never left for 16 years until I accomplished everything I wanted to accomplish. So how does that, you know, you show up at the martial arts school. So how does that evolve into becoming, you know, this world champion that you have, that you had come inside of that sport, right? I mean, I mean that didn't just happen by accident. There's a lot of people, that oh, go yeah. to Canadians, right? <laughs> yeah. a lot of people that, that go there. How does it, how, where, where did all that come from? How did it, how did it talk me down that? Well, for the first time in my life, uh, somebody really kicked my ass. Like, you know, like someone really knocked me down. And it was the first time where I ever felt, you know, 100% powerless. 
and 100% clueless. And, you know, just, I was like a small child, you know, getting smacked around by his brother. It just happened to be my older brother who did this and did my, you know, initiation is what they called it back in the day. But it was basically a 20 minute beating to see if you really wanted to do this. Um, and that's after you physically exhaust yourself and you can barely stand up, you receive this 20 minute beating. And it's the biggest test of your mind, body, and spirit you'll ever go through because about three minutes in, you realize and feel like you're probably going to die. And, right. and so you're facing this, you know, constant, am I going to die? Because very few human beings have gone through anything like that and, and stayed there and kept going. Um, and I've seen, you know, hundreds of the toughest men in the world after three or four minutes break down, cry and run out the door. Uh, but I stayed because I felt like this was my opportunity. And I mean, I started at the bottom. I started cleaning mats and, you know, cleaning gear and carrying bags and working my way up because I didn't really know anything about fighting. And that's what that first day taught me was that I didn't know anything about fighting. Being a tough guy was not fighting. That was not the business. You know, the business was learning the art and learning your body and learning a system that you could rely on. And, and so I began studying that. And luckily for me, I'd taken this mentality that I had in prison of being a student. And I took that student um, mentality into the arts and that, you know, everyone was a student, but nobody was like a nerd student. Like I was with a notebook and with a whole, <laughs> you know, drawing pictures. And, and so I took this very scholastic approach into the martial arts training. And it was kind of a new way of thinking because the old way you did what the master told you to do, he didn't ask any questions because you got a beating. And because I had built myself up and I was really tough, I could take a beating. So I just kept asking the questions, taking the beating. <laughs> uh, but what the beatings were doing was slowly teaching me this fighting style and then what I was capable of doing and what my body would sustain. Because you know, you're, you're way stronger than you think you are mentally, physically, and spiritually. And that's what a lot of people are figuring out right, right now in this time period is we're way stronger than we really think we are. And there's always more in the tank if you push it. You take the center of the ring and you keep pushing. And so I just kept going. And within you know, six or seven months, I realized I was retaining information better than everybody else. I was able to then articulate that information because I had the notes, I had, I had the drawings. And so when someone said something, I would note it, write it down, draw a diagram, draw a theory, try to create some understanding of what I was hearing. And then I would repeat it and I would use it as a tool to sort of, you know, the speaking and the repeating and the, the sharing of it became a tool to help me learn it better. It's so it, fascinating that you're saying that because literally one of the, one of the speakers we had yesterday a buddy of mine was basically talking about that as fast as he learns something, he speaks it and tries to teach it to other people because it's a way of retaining it. I love that you just said that. Yeah. No, it forces you to put really good concentration on it. And it forces you to understand it. You're not going to speak something you don't know about unless you're, you know, don't care about the information. But when you really truly care about it, and this for me was life and death, like I had to care about it or I was gonna take another beating. So, right. <laughs> and back in the day, like if you got the answer wrong, you took a beating. So you ask the question, yeah, yeah, you get a beating. Right. <laughs> if you got the wrong answer, you got another beating. So it was a very quick learning curve. And when you're in you know, the fighting arts, it either works or it doesn't. And the risk is too high. You get knocked out, you get choked out, you get your arm broke. So you don't have time to not listen and to not learn properly. And through this scholastic approach, through this teaching um, and the speaking and repeating, I was just able to grow very quickly. Within eight months, I turned pro and was in Japan and was making my debut. 
And, wow. and that began my professional fighting career. Within eight months out of getting out of Folsom, I was a professional athlete fighting in Japan. And, and that began my career. And I was just able to maintain that focus for long enough. You know, it took me, it took me seven, eight, nine years to really learn how to fight. And then once I'd done that, I realized, wow, it, it's not even about fighting. It's about presenting and, and entertaining. And it's about this art form of entertainment because you can be the greatest fighter in the world if you don't get on the right stage and you don't share the right message and you don't perform the best, people won't care. It's just not how it works. People care about good entertainment, <laughs> good storytelling, <laughs> good performance. Right. And so once I got to being what I thought was a great fighter, then I realized there was more work to be done. And so that work was on my persona, that work was on my presentation. And that's how I became a sportscaster. That's how I became a, a, a broadcaster. As I realized like, wait a minute, there's, there's more that I need to do to get to that very top position and to move the sport forward. And for me, keeping that core you know, mission of moving the sport forward is what kept me connected so well, because it was so important to me. It was my, it was my personal passion. I knew it would help millions of people if martial arts training and mixed martial arts training was available for everybody because it helped me. Right. And so the broadcasting became that when I became an actor, it was really about growing this, this presentation, becoming more of what I wanted to be, which at the end was the greatest fighter in the world with the best thing and you know, the greatest story. And, and I wanted to really entertain people when I got out to perform. And then the last five years of my career were all about refining that ability to perform. And when I got there, I realized like, what? I can't risk giving all this asset to another promoter because what if he doesn't care? What if they're not interested? What if their you know, focus is elsewhere? And so that's how I ended up starting my own fighting league as I realized like, hey, if I'm going to put all these assets on the line, I need to be in control of that. And I need to be you know, in cahoots and partners with the promotion so that we're in this thing together. If I pull out the risk and I risk my life, you know, we got to succeed together. Otherwise, you know, I shouldn't take the risk. I should go, you know, elsewhere, do something else with the asset. Um, and that really, you know, sort of summarizes like my little journey. Because for me, you know, my body was the asset. My art and my presentation was the asset. And as I move into the next phase of my career, like spokesman and, and branding, and it still remains the asset. You know, how we right. present, how we speak, how we guide, how we teach, how we mentor it still remains the most valuable thing. So what does it look like when you're training, you know, you're playing, you're at a championship level, right? One of the best in the world, if not the best in the world. Um, well, clearly you were the best in the world. Um, what does a training regiment look like? What kind of intense focus is that? And what is that? What is an average day, an average week, an average month? What does that look like in your life? Because I think a lot of people, um, and here's where I'm going with it. There's a lot of people, whether it's in business, whether it's in fitness, whatever, um, they're kind of interested, right? They kind of kick the tires, right? They, they, and, they, and they think that is the, the ingredient that it takes, but it is so much more than that. And I would love for you to expand on that because being intently focused on being the very best that you can be at anything is shockingly different than, yeah, that'd be cool. Right. And I would love I'd love for you to kind of talk about that. Yeah. Well, we call those guys weekend warriors. <laughs> yeah. They get up on a Friday and they're like, I'm going to do that this weekend. Um, 
the difference is it's all day, every day, as you fall asleep, as you wake up, you know, every thought uh, for me was fighting. And that included every meal, everything that went in my body, every thought that went in my mind. Uh, and, you know, my, my day started 7 a.m. because I got to eat and have enough time to, you know, have my stomach relax so I can get my first training and by nine o'clock, you know, nine to 11, I'm training. And then I go home and I eat and I hydrate and I lay on ice or I get chiropractic. And then there's another training at one o'clock and that lasts two hours as well. And then I eat, hydrate, get physical care, take a nap, like whatever needs to be done so that I can prepare for the seven o'clock, which lasts for two more hours. And by that time, I've done six hours of physical activity during a day. And probably three of it has been super intense, like as hard as you can do things. Right. And then the other three have been mentally intense and, you know, spiritually intense and, you know, feeding the body. Um, but that's a full time job. Like that's everything that you do. And then every night for me, it was, you know, visualizing my training, going over my notes, you know, it was falling asleep while meditating and visualizing the techniques I was studying, which then led me into my dreaming. And in my dreams, I just kept fighting. And this is where, you know, if you go back and look at some of the extraordinary things I did, like I set a Guinness World Record for um, the first UFC championship in 14 seconds. And that was a dream. That was a dream where I was studying a theory. I was studying wrestling and how that mixed in with grappling. And I was getting ready to fight uh, Kevin Jackson, the undefeated UFC, uh, the uh, undefeated uh, gold medalist for the 1990s, the 1990. Yeah, he won a gold medal in the Olympics. And basically he was untouchable and I had to fight him. And and whoever won was going to become the next spokesman type guy. Right. And so this was the big opportunity. But everybody I consulted with was like, dude, there's no way you can beat this guy. <laughs> like he's, he's untouchable. Um, and so through studying wrestling and my meditations and my visualizations, I started having dreams about the holes and the styles and how these two things connected. And I literally woke up in the middle of the night and went, this is exactly how I will beat this guy. And the hardest part for me was convincing all my coaches and trainers and everybody else that you know I'd, I'd had this vision and that i was so close to it that i could see and they could see the mechanics and they could see my notes but they couldn't see right the, the reality yet and then the minute i did that everyone could see it and they were like oh my god that's that's amazing and, and so there was a point where i was so connected to this um you know i wouldn't go shopping because it took too much energy to walk around and i wouldn't do anything that that took me out of what i was focused on you know, so I had someone drive me to the gym and back because driving took too much time to focus and like, energy and get out of the car and find my keys. So it became very much just this hyper-focused machine uh, because the risk was so high and the opportunity was so big. I knew if I could focus in that moment for two years that I could take over the world of fighting. And that's what I did. That's unbelievable, dude. I, don't, I mean, I, I, I don't know that I've I've met a handful of people, and one of them will be on this afternoon, uh, Ed Milet, that that would sit there and they could probably attest to being hyper-focused on something for at least two years. But I, I don't know, you're probably one of the few people I've ever met that could, that could talk through that. But clearly, that is what it takes to play at such an extraordinarily high level. I mean, to your point, you know, even the weekend warriors or even the guys that are just kind of, they think they're, they think, they got a hope and a dream and they're, and they're focused on guys and girls. They're focused on, you know, 
they're, they're good and they're pretty good. They probably got some people in their ear telling them that they're really good, but there's a, just, there's levels to this, right? There's a whole nother level, whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you're a fighter, whether you're a fitness trainer, whether you're whatever thing you're in. I mean, there's just levels. Yeah. But that's what draws the parallel to today. You know, this is, for me, this is a minor inconvenience. I can't see my friends. I can't go out. I can't hang out. Uh, but I've been working for home for 10 years. You know, this is little has changed for me, except for the assets have moved around a little bit. Uh, but it's, it's when you face times like this that you make decisions. Oh, what am I, what am I really about? What am I really going to do in response to this? And, you know, there's times when you get your ass kicked. Like I would literally get my ass kicked at, for asking a question. Um, you know, we're in a time where everything's messed up. But the odds of getting physically beat down or getting choked unconscious are pretty minimal for asking a question or risking something. Um, and this is a perfect time to hyperfocus. This is a perfect time to take some chances because everything is up in the air. Everything is in disarray when it comes to the stability of a lot of businesses. And a lot of things are going to change out of this moment. You know, when and I work in entertainment for the most part and what everyone's realizing is, wait a minute. We don't need to send a 10 person crew to go do this. <laughs> you know, we could ship them an iPhone. Right. You know, the world's changed because now we're watching television and it's just, it's a different texture. It's a different look. It's a different quality and people are just fine with that. So when this industry goes back to work, there's going to be massive changes in it. And those who aren't watching and, you know, taking chances and hyper-focusing on what's going on in their own world, you know, they're going to get left behind. Amen, brother. I was talking to somebody this morning before I started and, uh, you know, he was in a completely different industry and an uh, older gentleman and he was talking about, you know, I can't wait for it to get back to the way it was. I was like, man, I got news for you. Uh, I don't think it's ever going back the way it was. And you better either adapt or you're about to get run over, right? Because to your point, I mean, and, it, and it's and it's in every, I haven't found any industry, quite frankly, that that this is not, I mean, we're all being affected by it clearly, but in every industry, I think there is this, uh, the timetable has been compressed is the easiest way to set or collapsed on the evolution that, it, that, I mean, everything has changed, right? People are starting to figure out that they can work from home, that they can do commerce from home, that they can, that there's all of these transactions that we just felt like needed to be a certain way that we are proving in real time. Just don't. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, I, I see it in every industry. You know, it's never going to be the same, but, but probably for the better. For the better. You know, I have friends that drive an hour and a half each day to go to work. And now they're walking across the house to the other side of the house and doing the work. And they're like, wait a minute, I don't need to really go into the office today. And then if I'm a business owner and I'm paying the overhead of this, you know, really nice office so everyone could drive in there, why would I need that when they're doing the same work, they're producing the same and business runs as usual, minus the overhead cost. So I just think the entire system is going to change. And I believe for the better. Yeah, I do too. I do too. I mean, I, I mean, it's painful. All change is painful. But I think in the end, I think, like I said, I think it's an evolution, a natural evolution. It's just the time has been collapsed. I mean, we were going to get here at some point, you know, over the course of a few generations, but we're now we're getting here in the course of a few months. Um, talk to me for a second. I want to go back to the whole Strike Force thing because I'm fascinated by that. When you when you guys decided to start Strike Force, uh, was UFC already the 800 pound gorilla at that point? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, they had controlled the entire industry. So you're, you guys are stepping in and deciding to take on uh, the 800-pound gorilla. Talk to me about that, and I would love to know kind of the, the correlation that you've seen in just you know, your natural 
warrior instincts, if you will, to go, go and fight and do what you had to do. I'd love to kind of go down that path with you and t- hear about it. For sure. Yeah. You know, it was a, it was a time of change, basically. UFC had grown so powerful that they were now dictating the matches, the storylines. You know, they were pretty much controlling the entire sport. And it was great for growth because we were, you know, increasing growth, increasing market share. Um, but as a talent and as a performer, you know, you were getting stuck in these channels that maybe weren't part of your brand or that maybe well, did you, you know, back, back then, did they have to pick camps? So if, if somebody was a UFC fighter, they, could they do business with strike force? Is that the way it was? Cause I really don't know. I'm asking. Yeah. I mean, basically if you're with the UFC, you were stuck in these long-term contracts. Got it. Okay. And Got then it. you were, you know, um, subject to every whim, every matchmaking, everything that they decided. So, you know, if I was a, a talent, I just had no options to tell my own story. Right. You know, I had to, you know, pull their story as part of my story. Right. And then I had to face the guys that they put in front of me and everything was controlled by the promotion. So even though we were achieving great growth, if you were a performer, you were kind of stuck in these channels where you couldn't, you know, reach over to the other side and, and you know, start a conversation. Um, and then you were very exclusive. So once you signed that UFC contract, you were stuck for life. <laughs> You're basically trapped. And when we started Strikeforce, you know, we, I could feel, because I was managing talent, I was a talent in the industry, that there was this, you know, discord. There were talents that wanted to perform elsewhere, that wanted to tell a different story than the one being presented. You know, there were talents that had a lot of talent in front of the microphone and maybe weren't the greatest fighters yet but they could, they had a chart path, you know, they, they could see the future, but they just didn't have the resources yet. So one of the things that we, you know, realized with strike force is, you know, UFC controls the space, but they control it a certain way. And we felt like there was a tremendous opportunity to offer an alternative with a different storyline with a different, you know, channel. And we, because I was a talent, I realized everybody had the same gripe we don't get to tell our own story. You know, we have to fight who they say, you know, we don't get to challenge, like we don't get to reach over into the other side and, and mess with things. So when Scott and I sat down and we realized like, this is a viable opportunity, you know, and there's also a discord. And if we could fill that discord, if we could, you know, solve the problem, the need here, um, all those guys would come over to us. And so that was sort of the basis of our thing is we were going to, you know, create Scott, turn him into the alternative promoter, you know, the honest, kind, you know, non-exclusive type guy, you know, which was completely opposite of Dana White, the leader of the other of the UFC yeah. and sort of create an alternative. You can go deal with the, the tough guy, the mean guy, you know, the, the, this is the way it is guy, or you could deal with the, the friendly martial arts guy who's interested in promoting your story. Right. And that became our, you know, differentiating factors. If when you came over to our league, you know, who do you want to fight? What's the story? how do you want to tell it? How can we help you do that? Instead of you have to fight this guy, here's your thing, get ready, go do the thing. And it just created an entirely different culture. And then once that culture was created, then it became a wonderful alternative because people would come and they would perform like crazy because they were personally, you know, responsible. They were telling their personal story very much like I was, you know, they were like, listen, I, I want to fight this guy because of this. And so they were much more impassioned in their presentation. When it came to their final performance, they were much better. And they sacrificed and they did more 
because they were personally a part of it. It's personal for them. Yeah. 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 And so that was the, that was the unique differentiator we offered is you could tell your own story. You, you create the stage. We'll build it for you. And it was just a mindset and a culture that hadn't existed in uh, combative sports promotions yet. And it made all the difference in the world because, you know, what started, and then because I was also the lead of it, you know, I was leading by example. I was like, no guys, I'm doing it. You know, let me show you how it's done. And so people were literally just following the model that I had created. We created the stage and that's what made our growth so spectacular is finally there was an alternative. And plus the alternative was, even better because your risk was well managed because you were helping to do it. And that was, that's how we did it. How, how daunting was that when you knew that you were taking on the, the 800 pound gorilla? Well, it was pretty tough. And and that, you know, they're not like friendly guys. So they're, (laughs) they're very much uh, a lot of competitors aren't. And that's the reason why I'm going down this and, and, you know, business can be brutal. And there's a lot of times when you step into any market and you're looking at, you know, I'll give it a a parallel to, to my real estate investors here. You know, there, there's a lot of times there, there, in the last three or four years, there's been a phenomenon in our industry where what we call iBuyers. So people like Open Door and OfferPad and Zillow have now actually turned into buyers of properties, right? Mm. So they have these huge head funds behind them that are buying thousands and thousands of, uh, of properties. And so when you're, when you're the little guy trying to buy 20, 30, 40, 50 houses a year, you know, go make, you know, a million bucks or whatever it is, uh, that can be very daunting when you're trying to take on that 800 pound gorilla. Um, and so that's the reason I want to go down this is because that same mentality, those, those things you had to fight through, I think it's fascinating to be able to share that because I think that it takes a certain amount of fortitude and a certain amount of determination to, and moving very intentionally to get through that. Yeah. And it took a lot of creativity on our side. You know, we had to really rely on those personal relationships, those, those intimate communications with people. There was a lot of one-on-one like, Hey, you know, we're different. And let me tell you why. Here's your chance to tell your story. And then it became, you know, we had to adjust our business because someone's like, well, I want to do this. And it didn't make sense. <laughs> you know, we'd have to kind of, you know, you know, reason with them and help guide that, that messaging. So it made more sense for everybody, for all, all parties success. But the hardest part, part for us was, you know, the other side was very adamant on maintaining their position. And they were very, you know, strong about their defenses. <laughs> yeah, they weren't, they weren't just going to roll over and let yeah. right? No, and you see this in every business, you know, especially the larger ones that are more established and they have legacy in the place. You know, these guys were not going to, you know, give an inch. And so we had to be very nimble and very creative as we move forward. And a lot of that came down to that personalized relationship. You know, guys would come in, they would tell their story, they would tell the reasons why. And, and we'd, you know, we'd offer an alternative but then we'd have to we'd have to keep with that, and a lot of that was you know getting small groups, getting small teams to support that mindset, to help guide that message, to even help write the message. So it was a lot of you know intimate relationships that helped us move and grow very quickly, and then you know very quietly. Like even though we were out in front, people didn't really know what we were doing on the back end, and how we were allowing these guys to tell their stories and what the real creation process was. So we kept our secret sauce pretty secret. Um, you know, you could, if you look deep enough, you could figure it out. Cause I was spinning it all from the very top. I was, you know, using all the stuff I did for me, but in reality, we weren't telling people like, Hey, you know, this is the method that we're using. Right. Right. You're uh, <laughs> you gotta, you gotta get the story out there, but you also got to keep it just, just quiet enough to that 
somebody's not coming and knocking on your door real quick. Yeah. Yeah. Because it, plus if we'd have told them what we were really doing, the UFC would have just taken it and been like, all right, well, we're going to do that now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Thanks, Thanks, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I love that idea. You know what? We're going to do it too. Goodbye. <laughs> so then uh, how long before it was that UFC came knocking and ultimately, uh, you know, made the offer and, and uh, purchased you guys? Well, they came a couple of years in because we were, we had such fast growth and we were able to sign fighters that they weren't. You know, guys who had a grudge or who had a bad dealing or guys who, you know, didn't find the success that they went there for, you know, they were reluctant to re-sign. And so we were, we were capturing some of that market share and it was creating a little bit of, hey, what are they doing that we're not? So they came after a couple of years, knocked at the door and we were like, nope, you know, we got this. Um, and then it was really about almost five years in that they came for real. And, you know, part, part of it was that our our original investors, they were just straight sports guys. You know, they own the Sharks, they own the arena, you know, they were an investment group basically. Mm -hmm. And they weren't used to the risks that we were taking to compete in the same market as the 800 pound gorilla. And those were like 1 million, you know, $2 million checks with no, you know, <laughs> no ability to return on it. Like it was just like, no, no, it's going to be great. Uh, so eventually the passion butted up against the risk and, you know, they got, they got soft. They didn't want to, you know, stay in the game. It was a very generous offer. What was being offered, they were way over their, you know, recoupment for their investment. So it became a great business deal for them to exit and bring another partner. Got it. Got it. So, I mean, at some point you just got to know when to, especially if you've got partners involved, you got to know when to gracefully take the offer and move on. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't our money. You know, the risk was physically on me, but then I had actually moved on by then. I was now a broadcaster and a spokesman. So, you know, my, my physical risk had, had disappeared. Got it. And it was just money. At that point it was just money. And you know, the hardest part though, was we were so passionate about it. You know, we were so connected to this story and we it's realized what it was doing. Yeah. It was literally yeah, our business. Business. And then we realized what it was doing for other people. You know, people were finding that success that they couldn't find after years and years in the space. People were, you know, achieving their personal dreams and their personal, you know, branding moments and, you know, accomplishing what they wanted to. So we felt very connected to the people and to our community that we, you know, helped basically. So that, that was the toughest part was, was selling yeah, the people. But, but, <laughs> but, yeah, there's no doubt. Like when you've got, when you've got employees and, you, or you, and you've got, like in your case, you've got fighters, you've built this community, you've got a tribe there, and, and then, you know, you're doing what you've got to do from a business standpoint for your investors and for yourself. Yeah, certainly there's, I mean, you know, every CEO that makes an exit feels that way. Every founder that makes an exit feels that way. That's a natural reaction. What, what a, let me ask this, you know, where the UFC is now, where business is now, I mean, are, do, you like, do you like how it's evolved? Do you like where, what is it turned into and how, you know, all of where it is right now? If not, what would you change? Well, I mean, I like the size of the business and, and the scope of it. You know, it's always going to be a fickle business because you're really relying on talent's performance. And in that way, it's a little bit different and singular talent's performance. So in that way, it's a little bit different than like um, a team sport. Team right. sport, you can spread that risk out. You know, there's a, there's a, a collaborative risk. Um, this is very much on one person. And, you know, if, if I wake up, my back hurts and I don't want to go to work, it changes the whole business today. And so in that way, it's a little bit fickle, but I'm very happy with the growth of it and, and the growth uh, nationally and internationally, you know, where you can find this type of fighting on, you know, television every single day and about every country in the world. 
And, you know, that was my dream was for this to be so normalized where people could watch it and be like, hmm, I think I'll go train in martial arts this weekend, you know, and have that sort of personal experience where, you know, look like I could do this and, and sort of, you know, find an entrance into martial arts that way. I love that. I'm very, I'm very happy with the growth of it. Um, you know, I think one of the things that we probably skipped over just because the sport grew so quickly was protecting these guys post-career. You know, there's no unions, there's no retirements, there's no nothing. When you're done, when the door, when the cage just closes, you're done and you have to look for a new career. And, you know, I just find that from a talent perspective and then from a business owner's perspective, like I find that very unsettling. Right. Once they're done, they're done. And I grew up in a culture in Japan where, you know, you're never done. You know, there's always a role for you, even if it's sweeping mats at the end of the day when you're 89 years old. You know, you're always in the fabric of, of the experience because of what you've done. And so, I, you know, that, that's one of the parts of the sport that I, I would have loved to see change. Um, but, you know, because we grew so quick, because it really is a one-on-one type world, you know, it's, I just, we didn't get that far. Right. Um, you know, I'd love to see more amateur league development from the top down, you know, meaning these large companies that own these, you know, giant shows you know, I really feel like they should be investing into the future of the sport, which is investing into the amateurs. Um, but, you know, you get down to the corporate table and no one, you know, they're not like, what? Amateurs, we're going to pay money? No, they'll show up. Right. Um, because they always have. But to grow and to really grow and to see growth like other sports, like soccer, you know, I've been watching soccer explode over 20 years in the United States, but it's been the investment into amateurs and it's been that awareness and it's been that support. Um, so I do have some concerns over the stability of this type of growth over the term, because eventually, you know, they're going to either stop showing up, like no one's showing up now. You can't go to a gym now. Right. And how many of those gyms are going to close? Right. And how many of those gyms are going to reopen, which means how many people are there going to be? So at some point, you know, five years down the road, we're going to have a lack of talent. Yeah. There's going to be a day of reckoning at some point. And that's my only concern. But other than that, I mean, it's, it's been a fantastic financial success. Um, you know, it's literally revolutionized television and sports because it's, this, you know, this is a new sport that's very edgy. It's very interesting. And I mean, generally people love it. They love I the content. I was, we were talking about this morning when I was, I was working out, you know, me and my trainer were sitting there talking about that. this weekend, this pay-per-view. I mean, you think, what, I mean, it could easily be one of the biggest pay-per-views ever because, you got an entire captive audience. They've got no alternatives, right? They can't go to a bar and watch it. They can't congregate and watch it. So you're going to have all these different households that may, I mean, potentially it may would have never bought this, may buy it. I mean, and that one, if that one dynamic uh, proves out to be true, uh, it may change. It may revolutionize the way we all take in, you know, the, these fights. So I, I think it's an, I think it's one, I'm just fascinated by, by from a business standpoint. I love your perspective. You know, when we get behind the curtain and talk about this kind of stuff, cause you get the, you get the fighter side of it. You get the business owner side of it. You get the, you know, the league owner side. I mean, it's, it's, it's just amazing to hear all of this kind of, I could do this all day with you, brother. I, could say <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, I think I probably have the most diverse perspective because I filled all those roles. Seriously. That's what I'm talking about. That's yeah. why I can sit here. I mean, you can appreciate it from literally every angle. You start from the bottom, you come up and be a world champion. You start a league, you've been in the broadcast. I mean, you literally can see this from so many different angles and, and your ability to empathize with every angle is makes it, you know, uh, really, really fascinating, right? Where you can just sit there and understand uh, so much about it. And again, you know, for, and then from my standpoint, 
you know, from a business owner standpoint, an entrepreneur, it's so much of it is applicable where you can kind of see these parallels, right? I try to tell people, you know, I use this analogy all the time where I sit there and I say, uh, you know, you've got, you actually have to get, you know, if you're going to be a business owner, there's only so much you can learn in books. There's only so much you can learn about watching videos. Like you actually got to get in there and get beat up a little bit. And you can't be afraid to fall down. You can't be afraid to get the shit kicked out. You can't be afraid of any of that stuff. But it's always fascinating to me how many people will tell me, you know, I don't need a mentor. I don't need a coach. I don't need training. I've watched some YouTube videos. I've read a few <laughs> books and I, th- and, and I think I'm ready to go. And I'm like, okay, so what you're saying is that if I watch some YouTube videos and I read a few books that somehow I could walk up to, you know, uh, Frank Shamrock and say, dude, I think I'm ready to get in the cage, right? Let's do this, right? And you would look at me like I'm a fucking idiot, <laughs> rightfully so, by the way. And that's the parallel. Like, I'm like, this is war. When you're in business, when you're fighting for a dream and you're trying to create something, you got to get in there. You got to get it mixed up. And you're going to get the shit kicked out of you. You got to have somebody in your corner and you got to have somebody that's teaching you and is willing to be honest with you. Because if you don't, you're just fucking around. You're not, this is, it, it cannot be any more straightforward than that as far as I see it. So that's the parallels I always, always see. And the reason why I wanted you to be here, because I just think it's translates so well to what real life is like in business. Yeah. Yeah, amen. And you know, I tell all my clients to use this plus equals minus system because it is the greatest way to figure anything out. And uh, I know I spoke to you at the mastermind, but find your plus, find the guy with the information, find the guy with the knowledge and learn it, become your student, present yourself, find your equal, find the people competing in your space who are swinging the sword, you know, doing the deal, you know, befriend them or not, (laughs) but figure out what they're doing so you know what the what the competition level is and then find your minus, you know, find someone to teach and share that information to, to learn it better, you know, to pass it on, to grow your tribe, to grow your group. Um, if, if you use that simple method, like you can literally, you know, learn anything, excel at anything, but take any of those pieces out and you'll find yourself just screwing around the weekend. <laughs> yeah, you're going to figure out what to do. Gets to sit around and, and complain about life a year or two years down the line. What, what should have, could have, could. I mean, this is such an amazing opportunity, to, to, as you said earlier, to get intently focused and use exactly what you said, plus equals minus. And, you know, not, not dick around. I mean, you, you can actually um, do some amazing things with this opportunity right now, but it takes that, that, that attitude. Let me see if I got some questions here before, before I go here, brother. Frank, what was the mantra you'd repeat to yourself to help you through the tumultuous times or when you were starting to second guess yourself at the beginning? Um, at the beginning, my mantra was stay focused. That was it. Because I had a goal, like I had a real goal. And, you know, I, I'm in a, I was at the bottom, so, <laughs> you know, it wasn't hard to see the goal. But it was really about just staying focused because, you know, everyone had their own opinion. Everyone had their own idea. Everyone had, oh, I did. I used to box back in the day. Um, very few of those people were could see where I was going. And so for me, it was just about stay focused. Then as I got going, that mantra changed to this very simple one. Kill, kill, kill. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I, I, you just reminded me. Uh, do you remember the first time we met? I walked up to you. If you we were at a hotel. You probably don't even remember this, but I remember I walked up to you and I was with my buddy Justin, and you were standing at the bar. Uh, there was nobody in this hotel bar because we were just trying to find something to eat. You were standing there, and we talked over the phone. But and I walked up and I was like, "Frank, good to see you." And you said something to me like, "Yeah, you know, anybody I see, I just it was something along the lines of." 
I try to figure out how long it would take me to kill him. <laughs> <laughs> totally. <laughs> that was the opening line. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> but you know what it is. It's, it's a now ingrained habit. And I bet you real estate people do it when they look at a property. They're looking at well, what does it look like? What is the structure? What is the value? What is the market? What is going on? When I look at a human body, I make that assessment. What is the height? What is the reach? What is the structure? What is the most probable biomechanics? You know, look at the face. Is there damage? And so I take this mental assessment. It takes about five seconds. And I put a number on it. How, how long do I think it would take to kill this person? <laughs> Literally how we met, brother. <laughs> it was like, I'm like, uh, can I get a buck? What the fuck? <laughs> I was like, and then, and then the, to add injury to insult, he's like, I can definitely kill you quicker than I can kill him. And I was like, fuck. <laughs> um, all right, Frakes. All right, here we go. What did you take away from being in the foster care system? How did that help shape you? Well, I think we talked about a lot of that, but if you want to expand on it here for a couple minutes before we have to break. Yeah, for certain. You know, what really helped me was just finding people that cared about me, you know, because it's not that my family didn't care about me, but they had a very unique way of showing and so it's what really opened my eyes and opened my heart up to the idea of mentorship and the idea of, you know, listening to people. Because um, when you get mixed messagings when, when you're being abused and that person's also your leader. So it was the first time in my life where people were like, listen, I want to help you. And then I have to try, try to figure out what's in it for them. What are they doing? Right. Eventually I realized, wait a minute, they're just trying to help me. Like they're good people. Right. And so that, you know, brought that first shield down for me and allowed me to sort of open my mind and my heart to mentor. So then when Bob Shamrock came along, I was like, wait a minute, I really think he's earnest. And it was in accepting that, you know, that love and that, you know, that mentorship position that, you know, changed my life because I was ready. He was looking, you know, and, and we sort of joined together on that. But it was t solely through the foster care that allowed me to build that trust with people. That's amazing, brother. Um, last question here. Frank, super impressed with you. This is from Vince. Um, a great story to share, perseverance and fighting to get to the top. How and when did you begin to position yourself to pivot from fighting to broadcasting? I mean, you kind of talked about it a little bit. Tiny bit, but there's actually an even crazier story behind it. So um, because I could speak and because I was so passionate, I became the first talent spokesman for the UFC. And then you know, once we started gaining that traction and getting back on, you know, cable carriers and we started growing our audience, then um, it was actually Bob Meyerowitz, the old owner of the UFC, came to me and he's like, listen, why don't you broadcast? Like, you got it. You know, this would be great. And, and you could transition out of fighting into broadcasting. Like, you got it. And so my very first broadcast was for the UFC. And... Uh, he also threw this hook in there because he's a businessman. He's like, listen, we don't actually have the money to throw a whole fighting show. So what we want to do is we'll create a pay-per-view event with the never-before-seen fight of Frank Shamrock. And then we'll show a bunch of other legacy fights. We'll call it Night of Champions because you're the champion. Um, but here's the hook. You'll come out and commentate the first fight. I mean, I'm sorry. You'll come out and fight the first fight. Then you'll run in the back, put a suit on, come back out commentate the rest of the show. We'll pretend like it never happened and then we'll sell this pay-per-view. So I actually fought the first fight on a show, ran in the back, put a suit on, came back out and commentated the rest of the show. And then we sold that as a pay-per-view. My lesson there was never mix the two businesses. I was about to say, that had to have been brutal. <laughs> never, yeah. I fought uh, Jeremy Horn. It's a terrible fight um, because I just wasn't focused. I, was, I split my focus and go back to being hyper-focused. I, for once, took my, took my energy off of what I was trying to achieve, and I tried to do two things at the same time. And 
it was not good. But once I got through that, I realized I could broadcast. It was a viable opportunity. And then I started realizing that, hey, there actually is a chance for me to make this transition. And so that, you know, I just waited a few more years until my fighting had gotten to a level where I could be totally in control of what I was facing. And then I had the confidence to go back and revisit that broadcast. Dude, that's an amazing story. I've never even heard of that. <laughs> yeah, if you look it up on YouTube, I find Jeremy Horn, Frank Shamrock versus Jeremy Horn. And it's just a brutal fight because I just wasn't, I wasn't focused. I wasn't trained. I was supposed to have an easier opponent and none of that went in my favor. <laughs> yeah, easier for you, but he forgot to get the message, right? <laughs> yeah, nobody told, nobody told him I was gonna be a sports broadcaster. Yeah, exactly. Well, dude, it's been my pleasure. If people wanna connect with you, how do they find you online? I am at frankshamrock.com. I am at Frank Shamrock on all social media and I'm always online. I love it, brother. Thank you very much for doing this. It is, uh, as always, a pleasure catching up with you, dude, and I appreciate you sharing with our tribe. Yeah, man. My pleasure. You guys, go you, you guys go follow Frank. He's extremely inspiring. A great business guy. Somebody that, uh, you know, you can take a ton of value to and then offer to bring value to his life as well. I want to encourage you guys all to do that. Dude, thank you. Take care. Thanks, Peace, brother. Hey, thanks again for tuning in to today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you haven't gotten signed up yet with one of our award-winning products, I would invite you to go to reww.com. Check it out. Whether you're looking for advice on entrepreneurship, you're just looking for access to our Real Estate Investing Academy, whether you want to attend one of our upcoming live events, everything you need is right there. Plenty of videos, plenty of free training, plenty of access to software and tools that will help you to become a really successful real estate investor. Again, everything is right on the site at reww.com. You can also check us out at kentclothier.com. 